Welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, always airing first on WPVMLP Asheville 103.7 and streaming online WPVMFM.org. The voice of Asheville heard all over the world and on other community radio stations like KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio out of Taos, New Mexico. Thank you, Walter Parks, for our theme song, WalterParks.com. For more on Walter's music, and thank you, Devine Dial, for managing WPVM-FM in Asheville, North Carolina, and Robin Collier for managing KCEI-FM Cultural Energy Radio out of Taos, New Mexico. If you would like to reach out to me, nave at jamesnave.com, I would love to hear from you. This show will air the weekend of New Year's Day 2023, moving into 2024. So I would like to invite you to spend this next hour with me as I reflect on 2023 and look forward to 2024. I have a general sense of what I would like to share with you. So with that in mind, I'll let my imagination lead me where it wants to lead me. And if you want to follow along, I welcome you on this little journey that we're going to take in the next hour or so. I've been airing this show for the last eight years. It surprised me when I realized it's been that long, and I've probably interviewed over 300 people, and occasionally I've done what I'm doing now, which is just to go solo for the entire time. So if you have been listening to this show, you know I often have spent much time talking to a lot of different people about the poetics of things. Sometimes I talk about straight-up poetry. Other times I just ask people about their poetic dispositions, the way they see the world, how they record the world. And when I ask the question, how do you record the world, or how do you jot it down, I'm asking a broader question. I'm not thinking so necessarily recording as in recording a show like I'm doing now. It's more like what kind of approaches do you take to allow what you're thinking to go on some kind of record? And you may have thought of this before when I'm getting ready to say it just occurred to me now. I just realized that every conversation I've ever had required somebody to be in the conversation to listen to what I'm saying and required me to be in the conversation and listen to what they were saying. I'm recording what someone says to me and what I say to someone is also being recorded. I've never thought of myself as a recording device. I've always thought I remember the conversations or I will remember the conversations. Never occurred to me that I'm actually recording them. I'm taking them in and I'm putting them in my memory. So it would be fair to say my memory is recording them. And it would also be fair to say that the guests I've had on this show have all ended up being storytellers. No matter how they identify themselves in the beginning, I do this, I do that. I'm interested in this, I'm interested in that. Sometimes I've had people that are interested in finance. I've had people who are accountants. I've had people who are poets, novelists. I've had people that are adventurers. And all of these interviews have taught me one thing. Everybody is a storyteller. I've also learned that all I have to do is show some genuine curiosity, which is really easy to do because everybody has something interesting to say. So when I show genuine curiosity and ask a question or two, that's fairly simple, easy to answer. Folks open up really fast, and it takes very little time, maybe 10 minutes at the most, for somebody to get into their story, and it just starts to roll. You probably know what I'm talking about because you've been in more than one conversation that was compelling, exciting, and even though an hour or so passed, it seemed like only a minute. 
That's because you were storytelling, and that's because the people you were around or the person that you were talking to, they were also telling their stories as well. So if you're thinking you'd like to start a podcast like this one, Twice 5 Miles Radio, you can start by asking people simple questions that you're interested in, specifically about what they're doing. All you have to do when you first meet somebody is just pay a little bit of attention to what they're saying, find out what creates the most curiosity in your own imagination around what they're talking about, and then ask them a simple, easy-to-answer question that they can wrap their mind around and start to tell you about. And after that happens, you will learn more about what they're up to, and more questions will emerge, and you can spend two or three hours asking question after question. And if you're lucky, they will turn around and ask you some questions as well. You will inspire them, they will inspire you, and on you go. It's really an interesting approach. And even if you don't plan to do a podcast, you probably will end up in some conversations in 2024. I hope so. And if you're a shy person or if you're not quite sure how to navigate conversations, you feel uncomfortable, try asking some questions like I just described and see what that does for you. See how it helps you to engage and have a little bit of fun while you're doing it. So this show, Twice 5 Miles Radio, would not exist without questions. And when I first started to do this show eight years ago, I had no idea how to ask questions. And over the time, I have learned how to mine the conversations and hear something somebody says. And when I hear it, it sparkles. It's a sparkly little idea. And when that feeling happens, that's when I know to ask a question. So you may have a question for me right now. You may be wondering where the name Twice 5 Miles Radio came from. Well, as you might have guessed, it comes from something that is poetic, specifically from a poem written by Samuel Taylor Coleridge titled Kubla Khan. And if you've listened to this show over the years, you've probably heard me explain how this name came to be. So if you already heard it, you know where I'm going to head with this. And if you haven't already heard it before, well, here's the explanation. First of all, by my calculations, I wouldn't say I'm great in mathematics, but I do think twice five miles is five miles two times, and five times five is 25 square miles. To give you a contrast, Manhattan is 22.7 square miles. Asheville, North Carolina covers 46 square miles. And Taos, New Mexico is around seven square miles. So now you know how large twice five miles is, and you also know that the idea comes from Samuel Taylor Coleridge's poem, Kubla Khan, which I would like to recite now so you'll have a better sense of the poetic context. Also, a quick note before I get to Kubla Khan, if you're trying to name something, Poetry is a good place to look. You'll be surprised at how many phrases and ideas sit in these poems that you can use for something that you're working on right now, like your own podcast. So here's the poem by Samuel Taylor Coleridge, Kubla Khan, or A Vision in a Dream, a Fragment. In Xanadu did Kubla Khan a stately pleasure dome decree, where Alf, the sacred river ran through caverns measureless to man down to a sunless sea. So, twice five miles of fertile ground, with walls and towers were girdled round, and there were gardens bright with sinuous reels where blossomed many an incense-bearing tree. And here were forests, ancient as the hills, enfolding sunny spots of greenery. But oh, that deep romantic chasm which slanted down the green hill, athwart a cedarn cover, a savage place, as holy and enchanted as e'er beneath a waning moon was haunted by woman wailing for her demon lover. And from this chasm, with ceaseless turmoil seething, as if this earth in fast 
thick pants were breathing, a mighty fountain momently was forced, amid whose swift half-intermittent burst huge fragments vaulted like rebounding hail or chaffy grain beneath the thresher's flail. Mid these dancing rocks at once and ever it flung up momently the sacred river. Five miles meandering with a mazy motion through wood and dale the sacred river ran, then reached the caverns measureless to man and sank in tumult to a lifeless ocean. And mid this tumult Kubla heard from far ancestral voices prophesying war. The shadow of the dome of pleasure floated midway on the waves, where was heard the mingled measure from the fountains in the caves. It was a miracle of rare device, a sunny pleasure dome with caves of ice. A damsel in a dulcimer in a vision once I saw. It was an Abyssinian maid, and on her dulcimer she played, singing of Mount Abora. Could I revive within me her symphony and her song? To such deep delight twould win me, that with music loud and long, I would build that dome in air, that sunny dome, those caves of ice. And all who heard should see them there, and all should cry, Beware, beware, his flashing eyes, his floating hair. Weave a circle round him thrice, and close your eyes with holy dread, for he on honeydew hath fed and drunk the milk of paradise. And that was Kubla Khan by Samuel Taylor Coleridge. So now you know where I got the title for this radio show, Twice Five Miles Radio. I always loved the aspirational aspects of twice five miles of fertile ground with walls and towers were girdled round. And that's why I say Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. Now I would like to turn my thoughts to a question my friend Gareth Higgins asked me. Gareth lives in Asheville, and he also lives in Belfast in Northern Ireland. He wrote a book titled How Not to Be Afraid, and he sent a text out to some of his friends asking them to reflect on what... 2023 meant to them and also to look forward to what 2024 might mean. It's difficult to look into the future. 2024 hasn't happened yet. So I don't know what 2024 will mean. When you think about what something means, the only thing you can really accomplish is to consider what it means to you, what kind of meaning you've made out of a situation, an experience, a time frame. Meaning means understanding getting a deeper sense of an idea or a notion about something or a longing you have or maybe even an urge that you feel that you can't quite explain. And often the significance of something comes later upon reflection. You don't quite know it in the moment of its happening. You have to reflect on it, dream about it, think about it, and then you start to make sense of it. You make meaning of it. You understand better how whatever it is that happened to you or whatever it is you experience fits into your life. 2023 was a year of many things for me. It was a year of travel. It was also a year of reconnecting with old friends. And it was a year of my book. 100 Days, Poems After Cancer. I've mentioned this book often on this show, and I've also read a number of poems on this show from the book as well. 
A book in a box really has no meaning. There are plenty of books and plenty of boxes. Thousands and thousands of books in bookstores. All you have to do is walk in a bookstore and look around and think of how many hours people invested in making all the books that are on all of those shelves. Thousands and thousands of them. Each book represents a great deal of work and a great deal of meaning for the author and for the people who read each book. A book is a bit like a tool. You can make meaning from it by the way you use it. You can put it on your shelf. It becomes something that's decorative for your interior design. You can read it thoughtfully, turn the pages, make notes in the pages, get informed, deepen your awareness about whatever the subject is you're reading about. You can share the book with somebody else. Let them tatter the pages and get meaning as well. What's been most interesting and meaningful for me regarding this book, one, it's beautifully designed by Bill Watson. He's an architect in New York. He also teaches book design at Parsons in New York. He created a terrific design for 100 Days Poems After Cancer. It's beautiful, really. It's an art piece, thanks to Bill Watson. So far, we don't really have that much meaning. So what? It's a beautiful book in a box. Big deal. Lots of books in boxes that are big deals, little deals, and in-between deals. So where does the meaning come for me around 100 days points after cancer? Well, here's where it comes. When I got the book, I was excited to have it. It does feel good to have a publisher generate a book, and it does feel good when it arrives, and it feels great opening the box. So after I opened the box and got over the little bit of excitement that I felt holding the book for the first time, I started thinking about, well, what will I do with it now? Well, of course, I intended to sell it, so that was one thing I knew I was going to do with it. But selling something has very little meaning. What I didn't expect, and here's where the meaning starts to emerge, I never expected to end up in some of the most meaningful conversations I could possibly have with other men, some of them friends, many of them strangers. While it's true that often men do seem rather clumsy about communicating the more significant, intimate aspects of their thinking, often they stay on the surface. Buddies do a little laddie thing, tease each other, talk about what appears to be shallow stuff, and then they go on their merry way. And if you were listening in the corner to two fellows talking, it might seem like they weren't doing much. They weren't saying much. They weren't connecting on any level other than just a superficial level. Now, that's true. Often, people do just connect on superficial levels. And it's certainly true with men. But it's not a constant truth. Men do have intimate ways of interacting, intimate ways of talking to each other. They have their own codes about how they do it, and yet it happens, and it happens more often than you might think. So one of the things I noticed about this book, 100 Days Poems After Cancer, what I noticed was because of the design and how beautiful it is, when I showed it to somebody, they held it gently and they looked at it with a bit of reverence because they could sense the quality of the design and the quality of the paper and the book cover, etc. And some people just enjoyed looking at it and holding it. Other people said, gee, I'd like to buy it. Could you sign it? And of course, I said, absolutely happy to do that. And as I was showing the book around to friends and strangers, I started to notice the men who took it from me, took it to look at as they flipped through it. There was an interaction between us that was part of that coded male communication. 
They held it a little longer than necessary. They regarded it a little bit more closely. They looked at me with a questioning look on their face, and then they would look down at the book and look back up again. And it wasn't about them deciding if they wanted to buy the book. It was more they wanted to ask a question, a question about health, wanted to engage me in my experience. I've had enough encounters like this now to understand that the core reason why men engage me after they hold the book is because the subject is prostate cancer. It's a subject most men don't talk about. Younger men don't even think about it. Great deal of men can't tell you exactly where the prostate is located in the body. For the record, if you happen to have a prostate, it's located below your belly button. The prostate also has a lot to do with sexual health and sexual function. So that's another reason why men don't talk about it, because if you do end up with prostate cancer and you do have to deal with it, it does alter the sexual function which means it alters your identity, which means you have to change the way you see yourself, the way you see the world, and the way you interact with your sexual partner or your sexual partners, depending on what your preferences are. So, keeping your prostate healthy, keeping your body healthy, staying on top of all of the things that can go right and go wrong with your body, it's really a good thing. A lot of people don't do that, mostly because people maybe just think, well, it won't happen to me, so why should I bother? Everything is okay right now. No reason to, to push any of the limits. Well, here's one reason to at least pay close attention and push the limits a bit in terms of your comfort level around paying attention to your health. Every man will end up with prostate cancer if he lives long enough. Now, you may have to live to be 100 to end up with prostate cancer, and yet it will happen. It's an inevitable thing, and it changes from man to man. Some fellows get prostate cancer in their 40s, some in their 50s, 60s, 70s, and on up it goes. If you end up with prostate cancer and you're 97, chances are you don't have to do anything because maybe you'll make it to 105, but the odds are not great in that direction. So at 97, if you discover you have prostate cancer, you don't have to do anything. You'll die before prostate cancer will ever get out of control. And I do need to clarify one little thing. I may be a little inaccurate in saying every man on earth will get prostate cancer if he lives long enough. My point is to be a bit dramatic just to say that it's a present possibility for men in a way that they may not have considered. But on the other hand, if you're 47 or 51 or 62 or 61, as I was when I had prostate cancer, you have a long way to go. So you have to deal with it whether you like it or not. So coming back to the conversations I've had with men about prostate cancer prompted by them holding my book 100 Days, what I've discovered and what I think is important to note here, yes, there was the thrill of receiving the book, there was also something much deeper, the opportunity for that book to create a bridge between me and other fellows who wanted to engage me in a conversation about their health. I think they were drawn to me because I'm fairly friendly, I'm curious, I do a lot of radio shows, I ask a lot of questions, and it's fairly easy to get somebody to open up if you open up to them first with a question and some curiosity about who they are, where they come from, what they're all about. All of this is to say that in 2023, I had a great many pleasurable conversations with people that I knew and also strangers that I didn't know. Just casual, standing on the porch kind of conversations about 
lighthearted matters as well as serious matters like prostate cancer or health, people are always curious about stories. And I think that's what's most important to remember. Probably every year you pass, one of the things that you may remember most, I certainly remember, are the stories that people tell me. Not so much formal stories, but just what somebody has to say about what happened to them yesterday. 2023 was a year for me of just listening to what people had to say, asking questions, engaging, hearing stories, hearing comments, hearing ideas. And even if you're having a busy life, you can always stop somewhere along the way and spend five minutes talking to somebody. Which reminds me of a poem that was written a long time ago by a poet named Edgar Lee Masters. And the poem is titled Fiddler Jones. It addresses the idea of just simply stopping and talking to somebody. And it offers a contrast between those who really hurry and try, 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 and those who are a little more laid back. So this is Fiddler Jones by Edgar Lee Masters. The earth keeps some vibration going there in your heart, and that is you. And if the people find you can't fiddle, why, fiddle you must for all your life. What do you see, a harvest of clover or a meadow to walk through to the river? The winds in the corn, you rub your hands for beeves hereafter ready for market, or else you hear the rustle of skirts, like the girls when dancing at Little Grove. To Cooney Potter, a pillar of dust or whirling leaves meant ruinous drought. They looked to me like redhead Sammy stepping it off to tour Lura. How could I till my forty acres, not to, not to speak of getting more, with a medley of horns, bassoons, and piccolos, stirred in my brain by crows and robins in the creak of a windmill? Only these? And I never started to plow in my life that someone did not stop in the road and take me away to a dance or a picnic. I ended up with forty acres, I ended up with a broken fiddle, and a broken laugh, and a thousand memories, and not a single regret. And that was Fiddler Jones by Edgar Lee Masters. Poor old Fiddler Jones, he had to go away to the dance, the picnic, but he still ended up with forty acres. So there's something good to be said about giving yourself over to a little bit of dancing and some picnics along the way not being so fussed and worried about taking all of the cows to the harvest or things are going to be ruinous drought. So Cooney Potter, not in his camp, but I will take a few turns around the floor while Fiddler Jones plays. I just thought of another poem about a fiddler. It's a different kind of fiddling, but I think it's kind of fun. And since it's wintertime, and this poem is written in the wintertime, but it reflects a bit of the summer vibe. It's by John Keats titled On the Grasshopper and Cricket. The poetry of earth is never dead. When all the birds are faint with the hot sun and hide in cooling trees, a voice will run from hedge to hedge about the new-mown mead. That is the grasshopper's. He takes the lead in summer luxury. He has never done with his delights, for when tired out with fun, he rests at ease beneath some pleasant weed. The poetry of earth is ceasing never on a lone winter evening when the frost has wrought a silence from the stove there shrills the cricket's song in warmth increasing ever and seems to one in drowsiness half lost the grasshoppers on some grassy hill. And that was a poem by John Keats on the grasshopper and cricket. 
I've always liked the sounds of crickets at night in the summertime in western North Carolina. But here in Taos last summer, I had a whole bunch of crickets inside, and they do make a lot of noise after the sun goes down. Of course, the lonely cricket behind the stove was one thing, but last summer I had a whole bunch of crickets in my house, so it was a very different symphony than the one cricket in the dead of winter. And as we look toward 2024, I want to encourage you to think about the poetics of things. I talk about that a lot in this show because I think we all are imbued with that sense of appreciation that comes when you regard something beautiful or when you have a nice thought or when you put something together that surprises you. I'd like to read something from a book that I really have gotten a lot out of. It's called Western Wind, Introduction to Poetry by John Frederick Nims. And here's what he says about humans and poetry and how it connects to nature. So I'd like to read it. It's a little bit of an academic thing, but I, I've, I've gotten a lot out of it. And I hope you do too, thinking about Cooney Potter and, and the crickets and the stoves in the wintertime and all the changing seasons. So here's what Frederick Dems says about poetry. Everything in poetry is an expression of what is natural. It is the way it is because we are the way we are. The nature of poetry follows from our own human nature. Images, emotions, words, sound, rhythm, mind. Frederick Nems continues on. Human experience begins when the senses give us images of ourself or of the world outside. These images arouse emotions which, with their images, we express in words, which are physically produced and have sound, which comes to our ear riding the air on waves of rhythm. The whole process from the beginning is fostered and overseen by an organizing mind, acting with the common sense of our everyday life, even when dealing with the uncommon sense of dreams or visions. Those good words come from John Frederick Nims' book, Western Wind. And even though Nims does deal with the subject of poetry at great length in his textbook, Western Wind, he does it in a really simple, understandable way. And that's what I think is important about communication these days. Can you ask questions, listen and respond in simple storytelling ways? Now, if you want to become a complicated poet, you can do that over years, and it's a fantastic thing to do. The more you understand a genre, the the more it will reward you. That said, you already have a sense of poetics that exist inside of you just because of the way you interact with the world. It's a natural imaginative occurrence. While, you're not, while you may not be able to rub a lamp and make a genie occur like Aladdin did, you are in fact a lamp that contains a genie and that genie is you. Since you're your own genie and your own lamp, it's perfectly fine to go ahead and make three wishes. And after you make your wishes, you can declare that all three will definitely come true. Wishes are really aspirational, and we do have the power to make many of our wishes come true. A lot more power than the genie has rising out of that fictitious lamp. And on that note, I'd like to offer you a story poem I wrote a long time ago about a fellow who plays pool. His name is Jack, and Jack's luck's pretty good, but sometimes Jack's luck runs out. So how does Jack deal 
with his ego, his identity, when his luck runs out. This short prose poem, Tulsa Pool Player, will give you a little insight into Jack's approach to handling those things that happen when your luck is good and also the things that happen when your luck runs out. Tulsa Pool Player. He played pool, that boy from Tulsa. His name was Jack, and he could scatter those pool balls like rainbows across a green sky. He was dusky, his hands were quick, and his deep eyes won hearts. Never more than two light bulbs above my table, Jack would say. I don't like to squint while I win. Fifty dollars and enough stamina to play all night would get you into one of Jack's games. All the boys down at the pool hall smoked and leaned forward as Jack's pool balls settled into the hungry corners. Jack's mouth was always open just a little bit, and when he smiled, you could hear the money rustling in his pockets. Even the rack boys stood still on the afternoon. Jack's cue ball nicked a yellow nine and spun the black eight into the corner. When the ball dropped, Jack smiled and said, Well, you can't win them all, boys. Drinks are on me. The week after Jack left the pool hall and went west toward Albuquerque, everybody swore their luck had improved and their cue balls seemed to be running just a little bit straighter. On Christmas Eve, word came back that a brown-eyed West Texas girl from the Apache Mountains had spun past Jack on the break and left him a thousand dollars down by dawn. They said it didn't bother Jack a bit. He just smiled, leaned his cue stick against the table, and bought her a cup of coffee. Now, when this story ricocheted around that pool room, all those boys down there tipped their glasses, laughed out loud, and left every cue stick in the house standing at attention. He played pool, that boy from Tulsa. His name was Jack, and he could scatter those pool balls like rainbows across a green sky. And that, my friends, was the Tulsa Pool Player, which I wrote a long time ago. I was never a very good pool player, but I always thought it would be fun to play a role like Jack somewhere down the line, although it never happened for me. But I have seen people that can shoot those cue balls very, very straight into the corners, that's for sure. Something else that I did in 2023 that surprised me, I've mentioned often that I host an imaginative storm writing prompt of the week session with my creative collaborator, Allegra Houston, and we do that at 10 o'clock Mountain Time, noon Eastern Time, every Saturday. And you can always zoom in and be part of it. It's always free. I really enjoy the group of people that we have on the call, 30 folks. We spend an hour writing for 10 minutes and then reading and then discussing the work a bit. And one of the things we've started to do this year that's proved to be really interesting, it's called the Exquisite Corpse. And the way it works, after each person on the Saturday call generates a poem and then they go into the Zoom rooms and read their poems, they then return to the big room the big Zoom room, I turn the recording on the Zoom call. Everybody on the call offers up one line of poetry, whatever they want, doesn't matter. And the order is just whatever I choose regarding the Zoom screen. So it's a, certainly an arbitrary order. And I record that. And then I put the recording up on YouTube for people to listen to. You wouldn't think, uh, you wouldn't think lines arbitrarily tossed out in no order at all would make sense. On one level, maybe rationally, they don't quite make sense. But when you listen to them imaginatively, there's a kind of sense to it. Here's one of the exquisite chorus poems that came from a recent Saturday. The stars are small gods of the evening. Even the moth's tiny thumping heart knows when the light is out. Technicolor or Kodachrome. This beautiful morning helps to erase the small gods and the love of light. 
This is enlightenment, remembering the cycle repeats. Winter will melt, the beautiful morning will rise. Remember to awake now, carefully choose what you create. I am already distractible. Should I be here making choices? I was lost in the faceted fascination before me. Gather the light in every bloody shard. You are wild and hung with care. The long shadow of your fickle temperament leaves me twisting in the sky like part of a lost constellation. Get yourself some light now and bring it inside your heart. In the dark corner of the room is a call in the night for illumination. We are his careful creation, hung with care on winter solstice, shadows of trees. What is this fire at the center of my being? I saw my teardrops glowing in the lights, refracting prisms of colors on the ceiling, the floor, the walls, my eyes. The sounds kept the cobwebs out of his mind. Unbreakable lightness of joy. The forced sense of occasion that surfaces the same time every year. She was born in the back room on a straw mat. When my father died, there were no more games. The tigers lost their growl, laryngitis. Glimpses of Kensho on the doorstep of Samadhi. She hoped I'd become a nun, the highest calling. I thought I would. Careful when you make the world. Money casts a harsh shadow. I pick up a glow-in-the-dark tinfoil universe contained inside a wand. So there you go. That's our Saturday morning exquisite corpse. So here's a little exquisite corpse history from poets.org. Exquisite Corpse is a collaborative poetry game that traces its roots to the Parisian Surrealistic movement. Exquisite Corpse is played by several people, each of whom writes a word on a sheet of paper, folds the paper to conceal it, and passes it on to the next player for his or her contribution. In order to write a poem, participants should agree on a sentence structure beforehand. For example, each sentence in the poem could be structured adjective, noun, verb, adjective, noun, articles and adverbs, articles and verb tenses may be added later or adjusted after the poem has been written. The game is also adapted to drawing where one participant would draw the head of a figure, the next the torso, etc. The name Exquisite Corpse comes from a line of poetry created during the technique, the exquisite corpse will drink the young wine. So now you know where we get the idea for our imaginative storm, Exquisite Corpse, every Saturday. We started doing it last April, and we've done one every week since, so we have a fairly interesting collection. And one of the things I like about the Exquisite Corpse approach is that it lets you off the hook a bit. You don't have to be so serious about things. In fact, the 10-minute pieces that we write in the Imaginative Storm session come from a list of words that we make based on an image that we show. So we start out with an image, create a whole bunch of words, turn those words into some kind of form, like a prose piece or a poem, and then after everybody reads their work aloud, we take one line from each. Thus, as I've already said, the exquisite corpse. But what's interesting about it is you can move the lines around any way you like. I'm looking at the text of the poem that you just heard. The stars are small gods of the evening. Even the maw, this tiny thumping heart, knows when the light is out. Technicolor or Kodachrome, this beautiful morning helps to erase the small gods and the love of light. This enlightenment, remembering the cycle repeats, winter will melt, 
The beautiful morning will rise. Remember to await now carefully. Choose what you create. Now, when I read it like that, putting it together, it makes a lot of sense. Or you could jumble it back up again and go, I am here to make choices. No, I was not lost in the fascination before me. I just gathered what was hung by care across the long shadows in the fickle temperament that twists sometimes in the sky I call my lost constellation. Get yourself some light, and when you do, be careful with what you create, how you blow fire across the center of my teardrops. Do not let the glowing light refract prisms from something that hangs in the sealing night before your eyes begin to swallow the darkness and become the cobwebs inside a dream that has some lightness of joy, but you're forced to realize occasions pass, surfaces become tough, and then they become slick again, back in the room on the straw mat. Things were all well and good. You glimpsed toward the window. Outside, you could see something high above the trees calling back your name. Come, the world is full of light. Now that piece has no name. I just made it up as I went along, reading the exquisite chorus poem that was in front of me and building out from that another kind of exquisite corpse, a bit improvisational, yes. Also, not so improvisational because I was allowing myself to trust whatever I said and however it came out and in whatever combination appeared, that would be exactly what I needed in that moment. And this brings us back to John, and this, bring, this brings us back to John Frederick Nim's idea in Western Wind when he says, everything in poetry is an expression of what is natural. The nature of poetry follows from our own human nature. Was I making poetry when I was improving or was I just doing verbal gibberish? Either way, when you let yourself roll like that, there's a sense of completion, a sense of order, a sense of harmony. And when you have that, poetry naturally bubbles up in the language that you're speaking. It emerges, and you can make some kind of form out of it. And best of all, when you do that, it's really not that hard to understand. Poetry doesn't have to be all that complicated. Let's go back now to 100 Days, the poems that I wrote while I was recovering from surgery for prostate cancer. Each poem just reports where I was in the day or where I was thinking. This is poem number 42. It's titled, The Great American Highway. Is the American Highway that great? I don't know, but I like to think of it as the Great American Highway. So here's the, here's the piece I wrote about that. During my second cup of tea at Cafe Ello in downtown Asheville, a Penske truck in the loading zone reminded me of the travel centers out on the Great American Highway. Petro's, Flying J, Love's, TA Travel Center, Pilot and Sap Brothers. Islands of constant motion, these shimmering plazas lure you in for fuel, M&Ms, the restroom, lottery tickets, subway sandwiches, McDonald's, hamburgers, Starbucks coffee, motor oil, and Rand McNally maps. Travel centers are America's long-haul Paul pass-through shrines where the cashiers forget you seconds after you scan your card or pocket your change from the hundred you broke for gas. You seldom meet anyone you know walking across the parking lot on your way to only you know where out there on that great American highway. And there is a question at the end of the poem, question at the end of each poem. Here's your question. 
What will your long haul name be if you were an over the road trucker? That's kind of an interesting question because it is a question of identity. What would you be if you were out there on that big highway going all over the place? What would your what would your name be? Would you be Midnight Rider? Would you be Thistledown? Would you be Action Wheel? Would you be Clouds in the Sky? Who knows? I'm just thinking up names as I go along. There's one name that's really quite popular in music called Long Haul Paul. If you would like to hear some genuine trucker songs, you can go to YouTube and type in Long Haul Paul trucker songs, and his songs are six minutes long. He's not really conforming to the three-minute radio thing, but he really does cover some of the sentiments the truckers have out there on those highways, and it's a tough life out there. I've never been a trucker, but I have driven thousands, maybe millions of miles over the years, and have a deep sense of what a job it is to load up those big semis and haul that freight day and night all over the place. In fact, everything you're looking at that you own was probably on a truck, and it certainly was on a boat, maybe an airplane too. But those trucks, those trucks and those truckers, they, they're earning their keep, if you know what I mean. Staying on with the coming and going of time as we move toward 2024, I'd like to play a recording that I did with Walter Parks, My Poetry, His Music. We recorded this album, eight or nine songs or eight or nine poems with music, over a period of a year and a half or so. Did a bit of it in New York City on 23rd Street, did some in, in Patterson, New Jersey, of all places, and also in Jersey City. And Walter mixed it and came up with some music. So so here's the piece that we came up with. It's titled Picasso. At the time, I was wearing a little French hat, a little red French hat, and Walter kept teasing me, saying, Oh, man, Nave, you want to live like Picasso. You're living like Picasso. And I said, Well, I did write a little bit about it. And he said, Well, we can make some music, and we'll make a song titled He Wants to Live Like Picasso. So here's the song that Walter and I put together. He wants to live, he wants to live, he wants to live like Picasso. Just a simple little thing. He wants to live, he wants to live, he wants to live like Picasso. Send it on down now, Lord. through the Picasso Museum three times. I step out into early twilight on a Paris side street and stroll into raw skies. Just like Picasso might have. Will I settle in a cafe and drink an expensive glass of red wine? I've always wanted to live like Picasso. Give it some more. Copy my canvases in faded afternoons. 
I sit in this cafe, hoping to live to 93. I began sketching faces of all the women I've loved. Just like Picasso. I want to live like Picasso. He did it. living like Picasso and like I said I don't really want to live like Picasso but the idea is kind of nice and I do occasionally like to wear a little red beret to keep my head warm and in the spirit of Walter's music I'd like to offer another collaborative piece that he and I did is titled Candler and the name of the character in this piece Candler and she is trying to work out the dilemma that she has around a relationship so here you go used to be a preacher's wife down in Alabama. Her husband, the Reverend Doyle Summerhill, could preach up a storm. Yea, though I walked through the valley, he'd say, Alabama was farm country, and 
when Candler was growing up as far as she could see. Trees held so much summer that even the bees got tired by August. Must have been during one of those long fly buzzing nights when the heat had settled across the spine of the meadow that Candler decided that rotary fans, weekly newspapers, lousy hairdos at the beauty parlor, and devil-driven sermons were going to be markers in a book somebody else read. Nobody really knows what it was that made Candler restless. Some of the old folks say that if you live too close to the tracks and you hear the trains blow, it won't be long before your kitchen starts to look like a diner that charges more for coffee than you're willing to pay. Might have been the hailstorm, the one that tore up half the tobacco in Coleman County and left Candler wide awake with her knees pulled up to her chest. Most of the boys down at the Creekview Cafe still talk about that storm. Ace Rivers claims that was the night his boy Shelby joined the Merchant Marines. Patrick Moss swears he heard his mama's ghost dancing on the tin roof, just like they said she did when she was young and used to sneak off to the jazz clubs down in Birmingham. It drove her daddy crazy until he gave in to the idea and decided his daughter was better off in Birmingham than New York. About that same time, she showed back up on his doorstep with a husband in one hand and a Bible in the other. Folks around that part of the country will tell you that hailstorm tore up a lot more than tobacco plants. Storms like that have a way of washing the biggest rats through a drain system. The kind of lightning and thunder that runs along behind those big chunks of ice has a way of lifting the skin right off the bone, hair and all. It shakes the topsoil loose. It makes the crops nervous. Some say that was the way it was between Doyle and Candler. He didn't treat her bad. He just didn't treat her. Wasn't a whole lot different than having somebody give you a Hershey bar for your wedding anniversary and trying to tell you it's cake. Candler knew from the start she shouldn't have gotten married. But like so many other girls looking for respectability, she fell for Reverend Summerhill, who talked the napkins off her mama's table and told her the Lord had given him a vision and she was part of it. Restlessness is not something that comes over you like a new idea and gives you a clear view of the mountains. It just scratches and pecks. It's like one of those park pigeons that used to be fed. For Candler, it was more like hair growing out. No matter how you cut it, it still takes a year to get down to your shoulders. Then even after it's down there, you don't always notice it. On the afternoon, Doyle rubbed his right index finger over the middle shelf in front of the fresh dried coffee mugs and said, Candler, God ain't never gonna tolerate this much dust even in hell. Was the afternoon Candler shoved her chair back, walked across the floor, went upstairs, opened the drawers, and started to pack. And that was a little poetic short story titled Candler. My original intention was to turn Candler into a novel. She leaves home, goes out, figures out her way in the world. And the spine of the story is Candler does make her way. She does leave Doyle. She manages to become a photojournalist and goes around the world telling stories about all the injustices of the world. And she gets into a bit of trouble as she goes along the way, as you might imagine. So that's Candler. And and those of you who live in Asheville, you know that Candler is west of Asheville, just past where I-40 goes over the Smoky Park Highway. 
And after that, going west, it's Candler. I went to high school in Candler, so I maybe just chose the name for my protagonist because I like the name Candler. Anyway, we'll find out maybe one day if I write that novel exactly what Candler does and how she solves the problems of the world. Actually, Candler doesn't solve all the problems of the world, but she does solve a few in the story that I was working on, and maybe I'll pick it back up again. We'll see. And I'll close with one more poem from 100 Days. How about number 50, the 50th day, titled The Risks You Take. The sun above the Sangria de Cristo Mountains brought to mind the burner on my mother's kitchen stove. Don't touch that burner, it's hot, mother said. The coils looked cool to my five-year-old eyes. I pressed my palm and fingers down. My skin sizzled. I jerked my arm back and stared at my new blisters. Over the years, I've often wondered why I branded my hand instead of testing the air above the stove to gauge the heat. Most stories rise from the risks you take. If I'd done nothing but wave my hand over the coils, I'd have no story to tell. Walking the fence is the biggest risk you'll ever take. And here's the question that follows number 50. Can you list the risks you took that turned into indelible memories? How about it? Can you list a few of those risks? I like to say, can you list the risk? Can you list the risk? Can you lift the wrist? Well, anyway, we have arrived at the end of the show, and I do appreciate you listening to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, always airing first on WPVMLP Asheville 103.7 and streaming online wpvmfm.org the voice of Asheville heard all over the world and on other community radio stations like KCEI Cultural Energy Radio out of Taos, New Mexico thank you Walter Parks for our theme song walterparks.com for all for more on Walter's music Davine Dial thanks for managing WPVMFM in Asheville, North Carolina and Robin Collier for managing KCEI FM Cultural Energy Radio out of Taos, New Mexico you can always Join me anytime you like on the Saturday morning imaginative storm gathering. If you are a writer or you are thinking you might like to give it a try, we're always there and we're having a good time. And you can too. Imaginativestorm.com is where you can find more information on that. And if you'd like to connect with me, uh, Nave at jamesnave.com. Nave is spelled N-A-V-E. I would love to hear from you. Until next time, thanks again for tuning in. Happy, happy 2024. Happy New Year. Enjoy your weekend, and I hope 2024 is good for you, good to you, all the rest. And hey, maybe I'll catch you on that turnaround somewhere down the line. And until that happens, here's a little music from my good friend Big John Cher to sorbet the final part of our time together. See you next time. Thanks ever so much. Lying, but why your people?
Come with me to the higher ground. 